word for desert in Hebrew is midbar. The word for speech in Hebrew is divar. Divar is also the same word for thing. The word for I am speaking is ani medaber. These are such important points, I'm going to make them again. The word for desert in Hebrew is midvar. The word for speech in Hebrew is divar. Devar is also the same word for thing. And the words for I am speaking is ani midaber. Once you see this connection, you immediately wonder how you might have never noticed it before. They are the exact same words, except that desert has a mem letter at the front. Me devar, devar. Yet, I never quite figured this out on my own. When I was living in Israel, I was at a Shabbat lunch in the town of Sfat with a Canadian and now Canadian-Israeli family. They had made Aliyah a few years before. Their Hebrew was not so impressive, not that mine was much better, but they were at least trying to learn. At one point during the meal, the husband got everyone's attention. <clears throat> Standing at the head of the table, he said to us, Do you know why the desert is called Midbar? Hmm, good question, I thought to myself. I had never really considered that before. Because, he said, building up the suspense for a moment, because the desert speaks. When he said this, I experienced a brief moment of awe. Ah, midbar, divar, the desert and speech have the same root. He naturally anticipated everyone's follow-up question. Why would they have the same meaning? If, he said, you go out into the desert, it will speak to you. The sand, the wind, the birds. Then he took a drink of wine. Here's where I began to get a bit suspicious. Sand doesn't make noise. Are there even birds in the desert? What the hell does that mean, the desert speaks to you? It sounded like a bunch of BS. About two years later, I found myself at a dinner with two Israelis and a handful of Americans in the southern Israeli city of Eilat. The conversation was getting pretty dull, so I decided to think of ways to entertain or at least educate myself. It was then that I remembered the conversation in Sfat with the Canadian gentleman. You know how the word for desert is midbar, right? I asked my two native Hebrew-speaking companions. I heard that it's called this because the desert speaks. Is that true? The two Israeli guys both burst out laughing. Okay, so clearly that wasn't the reason. So then what is the reason, I asked. Why does desert have the same letters as speaking? Silence. They didn't know either. But then, as Israelis tend to do, they began to argue with each other. 
They began to debate as to what the connection between desert and speaking and thing could be. Finally, one of them, who coincidentally was named Moshe, caught the upper hand in the argument. It's because Devar means thing, he said, and Meh means from. The desert is the place which is away from all things, which is empty of all things. Moshe was starting to make a bit of sense, at least compared to the Canadian guy. As Moshe stated, Meh, in Hebrew, is a preposition meaning from. Devar means both speech and thing. And as I discussed in episode 27, in the pre-ancient world, thing and speech were intertwined ideas, if not the same, well, thing. In preparation for this week's episode, I decided to do a bit of research on the connection between Midbar and Divar. What I found wasn't very helpful. The late Rabbi Sachs said that the connection is because it was in the desert that the Hebrews heard God's speeches. Yet, there is a problem with this interpretation. This interpretation is based only on the world of the Torah, where God, Deber, speaks with the Hebrews in the Midbar, desert. Yet, it doesn't account whatsoever for Deber and Midbar as words on their own terms. I then looked further on the internet. I found a very unappealing Facebook video with a guy with the most American-sounding accent I've ever heard. Yes, ever heard. And, of course, someone with this American of an accent could only be talking about you-know-who, one of the most famous Jews of them all, Jesus. This guy's theory was that Jesus was in the desert, Midbar, and he spoke, Midaber, to the people, his gospel. This was an interpretation similar to Rabbi Sachs's, although without the elegance and gravitas, and which was, of course, entirely focused around Jesus. The more I consider this question, the more the explanation of my Israeli friend Moshe seems to make the most sense. What my friend Moshe hit upon is that the desert is symbolic of a place of nothingness. Actually, the English word desert is a good way to understand this. Desert has the same root as deserted, that is, a place emptied of objects, emptied of things. The desert is the ultimate ground zero. Now, as we discussed in episode 27, the word thing has been degraded today to simply mean object. But in both ancient Hebrew, Old English, Old German, and likely countless other languages, thing used to mean something of great significance, of import, of totality. This is why, as I discussed in episode 27, the Torah continually uses the word devar when God speaks or gives speeches to Moshe. They're not just chatting up there on Mount Sinai. A transmission is occurring, a transmission of speech or of things. At that time, they were one and the same.
Parsha for this week is Bimidbar, in the desert. Yet, we could also read this as in the place emptied of all things. Bimidbar, in the place of emptiness, of nothingness. This is not only the name of the Parsha for this week, but also the name of the fourth book of the Torah, which we call in English Numbers. We just finished, therefore, the third book of the Torah, Vayikra, or in English, Leviticus. Nearly every chapter and parsha, and many paragraphs, begin with the line, Vayidaber Elohim el Moshe le'emor, or in English, God spoke to Moses, saying. What I want you to focus on, however, is this first word, Vayidaber, Vayidaber, Vayidaber. Over and over again, in this third book, the paragraph will begin with deber, thing, speech, never with midbar, medavar, away from all things, away from speech, desert. Yet, when we open up this fourth book of the Torah, we are immediately hit with this word, b-midbar. The Torah is trying to tell us something here. Hundreds of times in a row, we get the word vayidaber, and this time we get b-midbar, so, what is the Torah trying to tell us? To understand what the Torah wishes to tell us, we need to take a step back and forget what we think we know about the concept of nothingness. With this word, bemidbar, in the place removed from all things, the desert, the Torah is rather blatantly telling us, Welcome, my son. Welcome to the world of nothingness. Nothing, quite literally, no thing, has a bad reputation. Bob Dylan once said, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. Well, that's called comfort if I've ever heard it. I guess it's good to have nothing to lose, but I certainly don't want to descend to the point where I ain't got nothing. We also associate nothingness with nihilism, the idea that life is meaningless. Nihilists are life's buzzkill, life's killjoy par excellence. Nihilists have done irreparable damage to the notion of nothingness. Yet, the television series Seinfeld has, perhaps more than any other phenomenon, poisoned and sickened the reputation of nothingness. Seinfeld is known and is self-proclaimed as a show about nothing. Yet, in fact, the show is not about nothing at all. The word nothing here is being recklessly misused. Seinfeld is not a show about nothing. It's a show about trivialities. The plots of Seinfeld are based on the most unglorified, mundane, routine, frivolous situations. Waiting for a table at a Chinese restaurant, going to a famous soup counter, trying to figure out why your girlfriend wears the same dress every time you meet. The famous motto of the Seinfeld writers was, no hugging, no learning. In comparison to previous sitcoms, Seinfeld cons conspicuously avoided any kind of moralizing character development, or grandiose plots. But that doesn't mean it's a show about nothing. If anything, it's a show about how what seems at first glance to be uninteresting is actually a fascinating phenomenon. Waiting at a restaurant, trying to find your car in a parking garage, sleeping under your desk at work. Seinfeld isn't a nihilistic show. If anything, it's the opposite. It conveys how much fascination there is to discover in seemingly everyday life how we tend to dismiss the seeming banalities of the everyday 
when these moments are, in fact, packed with intrigue. Seinfeld, however, is cynical, dark, pessimistic, but that doesn't mean it's a show about nothing or even that it's nihilistic. Yet, the problem with calling Seinfeld a show about nothing is that it tricks people into thinking that nothing is the equivalent of trifling or that people who have no core values, as the Seinfeld characters did not, are preachers of nothingness. Nothingness is a concept which is much more delicate, intricate, and mysterious. To create art which truly depicts nothingness is no small task. When you picture nothingness, you might just see a white room, or outer space without all the stars, or maybe even a desert. But these things are not really nothingness. A white room is a white room. A black chasm is a black chasm. A desert is a desert. According to Kabbalah, nothingness is an almost ungraspable concept. But, according to Kabbalah, the closest we can get to understanding nothingness is to imagine that we are looking through the back of our head. What happens when you look behind you? What do you see? Absolutely nothing. Not white, not black. Just nothing. Can you look with the eye in the back of your head? Probably not. This gives you an idea of how difficult it is to envision nothingness. Unlike Seinfeld, which was not a show about nothing, the literature of Franz Kafka seems to at times inspire to be literature about nothing. To better understand this, let's look at his short story written in 1922 entitled A Hunger Artist, Ein Hungerkünstler. This story is about an artist, a performer, a savant, whose art is fasting. Crowds gather around him to see how long he can go without eating food. He is cheered by the crowds. Laurel wreaths are heaped upon him. Children stare at him in awe and wonder. Yet, what is his art really? It is doing nothing. The more he does nothing, that is, stands in a cage and withers away, the greater is his accomplishment. But the hunger artist can never really be an artist of nothing in the way he wishes, because there is a rule that his manager places on him. After 40 days, he must eat something. 40 days is the absolute limit. Otherwise, the crowds become bored. They can no longer handle someone's fasting for more than 40 days. This infuriates the hunger artist. Why must he stop fasting? Why must he stop short of absolute nothingness when he is so close? Because nothingness cannot be grasped by the crowds. Here, Kafka seems to be drawing a parallel between the hunger artist and Moses. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days in which he spoke directly to God, face to face, as it were. And Moses, like the hunger artist, ate no food and drank no water during this time. In short, he fasted. Yet, eventually, he had to come back down. He had to convey God's message to the Hebrews. There was a sense in which, had Moshe stayed on Mount Sinai longer than 40 days, the message would have become too abstruse for the Hebrews to understand. Or put another way, God's message would have come too close to nothingness to be understood by the Hebrews. But artistic tastes change. The heyday of fasting begins to pass in Kafka's story. Soon, the hunger artist finds himself alone in his cage. Audiences have lost their interest in him. He is a relic of another era. Yet, the hunger artist does not give up on his craft of doing nothing. Now, nothing stands in his way. 
of total and ultimate fasting. He no longer must obey the 40-day limit, as he has no more crowds to appease. He therefore fasts and fasts for so long that even he loses count of the days. One day he is found inside his cage by a custodian of the circus. He has become so emaciated that the custodian can barely distinguish him from the straw on which he lies. We do not know exactly what happens to the hunger artist from that point. The custodian orders that the cage be swept up and cleaned out, much like Gregor Samsa in the Metamorphosis was swept away by the maid. There is a sense in which the hunger artist has dissolved, evaporated, vanished, merged with the straw on the floor of his cage. His art has reached its apex. He and his art have become nothing. Now, here you might think, isn't this nihilistic? What good is art if its ultimate goal is to disappear? If we associate God with nothingness, isn't that saying that God doesn't exist or that God is nothing? Isn't God everything, all things? Jewish mysticism, or the Kabbalah, teaches that nothingness is not God per se. Rather, nothingness is the closest one can come to imagining God. In the Kabbalah, God is more real than anything else that exists. However, there is nothing in the human mind that can relate to God as he actually is. Nothingness, therefore, is the closest we can come to imagining God. God and nothingness share the distinct commonality that neither can be placed in any category. Neither can be depicted. Both are above all language, impression, all, quite literally, things. Kabbalah teaches that when one imagines nothingness, it is God which is just behind this nothingness. The concept that nothingness situates us on the gateway to ultimate meeting is a matter which I discussed in episode 9. In meditation, it is taught that when we truly experience the moment, what we experience is a kind of nothingness. Yet, this experience of nothingness is when we are prepared to make the final leap into nirvana. Nietzsche expresses a similar idea in his philosophy. Nietzsche's entire philosophical mission, we might say, was to overcome nihilism. Yet, if you read Nietzsche's philosophy, it might at times sound nihilistic. There is no truth. All values are relative. Morality doesn't really exist. Yet, Nietzsche understood that to defeat nihilism, one must go deep into nihilism, deep into nothingness, and then emerge on the other side into ultimate meaning. For Nietzsche, it was the Übermensch who was to undertake this lofty task. For Kafka, it was the artist. And for the Hebrews, it was Moshe. The nihilist, we might say, goes into nothingness and dwells there, luxuriates there, finds satisfaction in this empty world devoid of value, meaning, purpose. The Nietzschean, the Buddhist, the hunger artist, and the Hebrew, it would seem, go into nothingness not to dwell there, but to use it as a ground zero on which to build anew. It is only when all has been deconstructed that real truth and transcendence can emerge. We are not yet done with this week's parsha of Bemidbar. The Hebrews now find themselves in the desert, in the emptiness, in the place of no thing. But what does the Torah discuss immediately after this word, Midbar? What's this week's parsha about? It is about the Hebrew military. After telling us that we are in the emptiness, the Torah then tells us how this emptiness is going to be filled. 
It goes through each Hebrew tribe and tells us how many thousands of soldiers can now be found in each tribe one year after the exodus from Egypt. It then tells how the tribes will organize themselves as they march through the desert, the flags they will carry, the names of the commanders of each tribe. In total, the Hebrew army has now grown to the size of 603,550 troops. Now, I know what you're thinking. Moses and God took us into the divinity and holiness of nothingness just so we could come out with an elaborate military parade? Isn't the Torah a peace-loving book about spirituality and enlightenment? Is a military campaign really how we want to use our coveted foray into nothingness? Well, before you jump all over the Torah, remember that we are dealing with the ancient world, a world before the United Nations, UNICEF, and The Hague. The Torah is one long saga leading up to the moment when the Hebrews will enter and conquer Israel to form a new homeland, the homeland which God promised Abraham. This is not just a military adventure. This is the Torah's reason for being. This is the entire purpose of the Exodus, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. This is, put another way, salvation. What transcendental meditation is for a Buddhist monk is the military conquest of Israel for the ancient Hebrews. The assembling of the troops in the Sinai desert is no more or no less than the Tibetan monks inhaling and exhaling of the breath of Nirvana. As the fourth book of the Torah opens, Moshe is now come down from Mount Sinai. The message from God has brought the Hebrews into the desert, into the nothingness. Now in the Midbar, the Hebrews must decide where they will go from ground zero. And the Torah is clear what one should do when one ascends into the free realm of nothingness. One should take action, move forward, conquer 